previously on What's It All About. I've got to be sure that this is true. Is Jesus really God? Did he do what I've heard that he's done? I mean, did he, did he walk on water? Has he really cast out demons? Did he really multiply fishes and loaves and feed 5,000 people with that little bit of food? Did he really command nature to obey him and the storm died down and the waves ceased? Did he really command someone who was dead to rise? Did he really say that he was God? Can he really forgive sin? Is he really God who has become man to reconcile us back to God? Is all of this really true or is it not true? I've got to know. Jesus looked at his disciples and he told them everything that you've ever learned from the Old Testament, everything you've ever learned from the scriptures, everything that was ever written from any prophet that heard from God and spoke a word to the people, everything is fulfilled in me. That catches us up to where we are today. And those are the words that Jesus spoke to his disciples. And Luke records them for us in the 18th chapter of his gospel verses 31 through 34, where he says, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written, everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, will be mocked, shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. So that's where we are. We've learned the answer to the question, what's it all about? The answer to that question is Jesus. And that seems like a very simple answer, but it still leaves some other questions in our minds, such as, well, how do we know? And why? Why? Why all of the stuff that we have in the Old Testament, all of those books of history, all of those prophecy books, all of that wisdom literature, everything we have compiled in the Old Testament, you're saying you mean to tell me that that is all about Jesus? Yes. Yes, that's exactly what we're saying. And so what we're going to set out to do today in episode three is begin to answer the question, how and why? Let's get into it. So we know that Jesus is telling us that his life is about this book, the Bible. If you hold a Bible in your hand, or if you have a Bible open, for example, while you're listening to this podcast, and I hope that you do, I hope that you will always, every time you listen to a sermon, I hope that you will always go back home and study it for yourself. It is so important for each Christian 
to seek these truths on your own. We are all flawed. All of us pastors and preachers and people who teach the scriptures, we're not going to get it all right. So by the grace of God, we trust that we're preaching the truth, but we also trust that he will reveal to you from his word, the scriptures, the truth. And so when you dig into this book, every time you open it, remember that the prophets who wrote the scriptures in the Old Testament, what they were doing is they were predicting the life and suffering and death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. That all of the history that we are given throughout the Old Testament was foreshadowing of the ministry of Jesus and what Jesus would come to do as the Messiah, the Savior, the one that they would long to look for and see all throughout Jewish history. So all of the books in our Bible are ultimately about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And here's a very important point that we need to understand. We don't worship the Bible, but we worship the God of the Bible, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we love and trust the Bible because it is the perfect and thorough recording of Jesus Christ predicted to come into history and the fulfillment of all that was promised. Well, if we look back at his statement in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says a few things there. Number one, he says he's on a mission. And ultimately, Jesus's mission would culminate in Jerusalem. And that's exactly what Jesus says. He says it will be accomplished. All that is written will be accomplished. And he said, we're going up to Jerusalem. When Jesus uses this language of going up to Jerusalem, that would have been really common and familiar language to the people that he would have been speaking to at that time. The most frequently mentioned city in the whole Bible is that great city of Jerusalem. It was literally a city on a hill. And so when people would speak or when they would visit of ascending or going up to Jerusalem, those who would pilgrimage in the days of Jesus would literally sing their way up toward that great city of Jerusalem. It's a city that was built essentially on rock. And in Jesus's day, it was an enormous city. It would have been one of the largest cities in that area at that time. Earlier in the Gospel of Luke, a passage that many people are familiar of because of the Christmas season and the readings of the Christmas story every year, you learn that Jesus was actually born in a town called Bethlehem. And that as a boy, he grew up in a very small town called Nazareth in a region called Galilee. And he was brought to the temple as a young child and dedicated there in Jerusalem. And he perhaps would have made other trips with his family back to Jerusalem, just like all of the Jewish families did. And so Jesus's life, for the most part, was lived away from Jerusalem, his life on earth. And in chapter 9, verse 51 of Luke's gospel, Jesus says something after he had become very popular with large crowds, preaching and teaching in this rural area called Galilee. He says something really important to the storyline and the narrative of Luke's gospel, which creates a transition point, not only in the gospel, but in Jesus's ministry on earth. It says in that verse that he, that is Jesus, set his face toward Jerusalem. 
that Jesus was, while on the earth, he was a man on a mission. That's one of the things that he tells his disciples, that look, we are going up to Jerusalem to ultimately fulfill and culminate his mission. And that mission is to go to the cross, to atone for the sin of the world as our Savior, to substitute himself in our place, his death for our life. And all of this happens in Jerusalem. The centerpiece of Jerusalem was the temple. And that's why it's often called the city of David, because David was the one to whom God gave the initial command to have the temple constructed, although it was his son Solomon who oversaw the construction of the temple ultimately. It was in that same place where history tells us that Abraham, the father of the faithful, the very first man that God called to say, I am going to use your line, your family line, to bring the Messiah, to come to earth myself, God on earth, Messiah, Emmanuel, to come and be the savior of the world. It was going to start with Abraham. And Abraham almost sacrificed his only son, Isaac. And where did he almost do that? Where was the hill that Isaac willingly carried wood on his back to a place of potential death where he would lay himself down willingly to die at the hands of his father? It was on that same hill where the temple would later be constructed. Well, thankfully, the conclusion of that story with Abraham and Isaac, the Bible tells us that just as Abraham was about to sacrifice his son, just as he was about to plunge a knife into his son's heart, the Bible records for us that the angel of the Lord appeared. And I believe that that was very likely the Lord Jesus Christ. And the angel said, do not sacrifice your son. It will be provided. Now, that's a really strange story, but keep listening, and I think you'll understand the reason for it. Many years later, Jesus would ultimately come, another son, to carry sacrificial wood of his own, his cross, in that very same region where Abraham and Isaac were walking to willingly lay down his life at the hand of his father. And that event with Abraham and Isaac was all a foreshadowing and a predicting and an anticipating of what Jesus would later do in that very place. And so the temple was built literally on that same place where Abraham almost sacrificed Isaac, foreshadowing what Jesus would many years later ultimately accomplish right there in that place. The temple was the place where God's people would gather for worship. It was the centerpiece to the nation of Israel. In the center of the temple was the Holy of Holies. This is where the glory of God, the presence of God, literally dwelt among the people of God on earth. We don't know what that's like today, 
to only have the presence of God in one place that you would have to pilgrimage to or walk to to visit, to worship in that place if you wanted to be near the presence of God. One of the awesome things that Jesus accomplished for Christians today is the opportunity to have the presence of God with us at all times, in all places. So we have no idea what it was like to be separated from God and have to walk to a place on a yearly basis just to get a chance to go and be in the presence of God. And that's what would happen. They would go to the temple. And there would be priests there who would offer sacrifices that people would bring. And these sacrifices would be animals whose blood would be shed and offered as forgiveness on behalf of the sins of the Jewish people and their families. And the priests would offer these sacrifices showing that Jesus would ultimately come and shed his blood for our sin as our sacrifice once and for all, paying our debt of death. Well, the priests were all foreshadowing that Jesus would come and do this very thing, that he would be our great high priest to offer this sacrifice once for all, as the book of Hebrews tells us. And the temple was also a foreshadowing that Jesus would come and be God among us, Emmanuel, Messiah. And that's what he's been teaching the people throughout the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when you read about the teachings of Jesus, one of the things that he was trying to get people to understand is that God had come. God was near. He had drawn near to them, and he was present with them in the body and work of Jesus Christ. But until then, the connecting place with God and people, was the temple. The temple was that place between heaven and earth, you could say. It's where people met with God and God met with people and God would choose to dwell in the glory of the Holy of Holies there. And Jerusalem was built around the temple of God. And Jesus says to his disciples that his mission would culminate in Jerusalem, where all that had been foreshadowed throughout the Old Testament, all that had been expected, all that had been anticipated would ultimately be fulfilled in him. And the point is that everything in history has been leaning toward this one event. Everything that the Bible prophesies, everything that the Bible promises, everything that the Bible anticipates throughout the history of the Old Testament would ultimately be fulfilled in the death, burial, and resurrection of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus here is prophesying, he's predicting, he's telling us the future. And the reason he can do that is because God is sovereign. He knows the future. God is omniscient, which means he's all-knowing, and that includes the future. God is eternal, which means he is apart from time, although he works in time. Because God is unlike us, he knows the future, and then he chooses to reveal parts of the future to us. And that's what Jesus Jesus is doing when he tells his disciples that he's on his way to Jerusalem where this will all be fulfilled. And he says a few specific things. He says that he will be arrested. He will be mocked. He will be shamefully treated. He will be spit upon, which was an act of great disrespect. And he says that he would be flogged. 
Jesus gives the actual mode by which he would suffer. He says that he would be flogged. Now a flogging in that day was often a fatal punishment for many men. If you've ever seen Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, I believe that that movie typifies a flogging in that day pretty accurately, according to the way historians describe a Roman flogging. They would take a prisoner, they would strip them naked or near naked to embarrass and humiliate them, and they would beat them. Jesus was beaten. His beard was plucked out. He was mocked. He was shamefully treated, falsely accused. He was spat upon. And everything that Jesus predicted before it happened came to pass. The way a flogging would occur is that they would take a man and they would have his hands affixed, possibly chained or roped together, and he would be tied to a whipping post with his arms placed around that post, and his back and his legs and his buttocks would have all been exposed. And then perhaps two soldiers, one on each side, would have something called a cat of nine tails, and that cat of nine tails was a long mallet, it was a handle about a cubit long, and it had attached to it strips of leather. And at the end of each of those strips of leather, there would have been little balls of metal or stone, and they would tenderize the man's flesh just as you would tenderize a piece of meat. There were also many little hooks made out of bone or metal that were attached across each of those leather straps. And when they would slam that mallet down on the back of the man's flesh, those Leather strips would wrap around and the hooks would sink in and the heavy, sharp metal balls would bruise the flesh, but those hooks would sink in and then they would pull laterally and they would literally rip the flesh off of the man's body. Well, obviously when that happened, his heart would go into trauma and he would have significant blood loss, so much so that many men would die from flogging. So when Jesus uses the word flogged, he knows that that is exactly what he will experience in Jerusalem. But he's a man on a mission to fulfill the scriptures, to get to Jerusalem, to atone for the sin of the world by suffering at the hands of sinful men and women. Although he himself was without sin, this was his mission. And he tells them that he would also be killed. He knew that his mission was that he would die on the cross, that he wouldn't die from the flogging, but he would indeed die on the cross and he did die on the cross he breathed his last breath and to ensure that he was dead there was an executioner one of the soldiers standing underneath him and he took a spear and underneath the side underneath the rib cage he plunged that spear into jesus so that it would puncture the heart sack and then water and blood flowed from his side in case there was any question at all about whether or not he was dead 
that did it. Well, then Jesus was taken down from the cross and he would have been wrapped in burial linens and spices weighing upwards of possibly 80 to 100 pounds. And then his body was placed in a cold tomb, which was carved out of rock with a big heavy rock put in front of it. So inside that tomb, he would have had no medical care, nobody to take care of him, no opportunity to take care of himself. Listen, Jesus was killed just like he promised. And he prophesied and promised as well that he would resurrect, that he would be the only man to ultimately conquer, defeat death, that he would do the one thing that no man has ever done. He would come back from death to never die again. And that is because the wage for sin is death. And Jesus died in our place for our sins, although he was without sin. And so by being a substitute for us, he carried sin on himself on the cross. And he did indeed die for our sins. But the fact that he himself had no sin, death could not hold him because that is the ultimate price for sin. But death couldn't hold Jesus because he had no sin. And so on the third day, he died on Friday, and then you have Saturday, and then you have Sunday. So the third day on a Sunday, the day that Christians now prefer to worship together, although the Bible gives us freedom to worship anywhere at any time, corporately, on Sunday, Jesus rose from death. And he predicted all of this in the scriptures. The passage that we read earlier, Luke 18, he tells us exactly what will happen to him. He prophesies and promises what is awaiting him in Jerusalem. And Jesus says this, and listen, we need to hear this again. He says, everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. So Jesus says, everything that I'm going to experience, everything that I'm about to endure and overcome, and accomplish is fulfillment. It is accomplishment of that which God has spoken through the prophets. Again, Jesus is saying, this book is about me. The Bible is about me. That's what he's saying. That all of it was written to point to that moment that mission that he would accomplish there in Jerusalem. This is very important to understand. The Bible is not about us primarily. It's not about nations or history primarily. It's not about doing good works or religion, or it's not even about the supernatural primarily. All of those things are in the Bible, but the Bible is primarily about Jesus. The Bible is about Jesus Christ. And so what this does is it raises the question in our minds that we'll have to answer in the next episode. Jesus says that his life, his mission, his ministry, his journey toward Jerusalem is in fulfillment of the scriptures. So not only does Jesus fulfill the scripture, fulfilling the Old Testament scriptures in particular, he makes us this promise that the prophets, the prophets of the Old Testament are writing about him. He says, the prophets are writing about me. 
And so that leads us to a question then. Well, where is Jesus in the Old Testament? Where's his name? Where does he show up? How can we really see Jesus in the Old Testament? Next time.